Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Industrial S Word, where we try and stop making safety such a bad word. I'm your host, Matthew Ernst of Schmerzel Canada. Today, I'm joined by Doug Nix from Compliance Insight Consulting, Inc. Doug Nix co-owns Compliance Insight Consulting, Inc. and writes the Machinery Safety 101 blog. Since 1985, his experience includes control system design, test, certification, consulting, and electrical equipment and automation systems. He specializes in risk assessment and machinery safety. Nix is a 30-year member of Ontario Association of Certified Engineering Technicians and Technologists and a senior member of the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. Nix serves on nine CSA, IEC, and ISO technical committees related to his work. You can find him on LinkedIn at www.linkedin.com in slash Doug Nix. All right, welcome everyone to the inaugural podcast episode. This is the Industrial S Word, and I'm happy to be joined today by a very good friend of mine, an acquaintance, somebody that I've worked with many years, Doug Nix. How are you doing today, Doug? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? I am. I'm doing. I'm fantastic. I'm very excited for for this. Uh, we've been talking about doing a podcast about getting some information out in terms of safety for quite a long time. Uh, so here we are. Finally, we've come to the, the the first step, and I'm so excited because you're a wealth of knowledge. You're someone that I've always turned to when I've had questions, when I've had curiosities. You're someone who's so well ingrained when it comes to safety, and and your expertise goes beyond a lot of the times functional safety, which is what I typically do. And I'm always amazed by how well you've immersed yourself in this field. Well, thanks. That's a, a, a pretty amazing welcome. I appreciate that very much. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, the big thing is that I have a fairly insur- insatiable curiosity. And so I tend to follow breadcrumbs. Uh, and so when I get curious about something, whether it's functional safety or some other aspect of what it is we do, I tend to run down those roads until I either run out of energy or I've figured out what it is I was looking for. And um, so the the good thing about that is uh, it's given me um, a, maybe a little wider perspective than some people might have. Um, the bad thing about it is that I spend a lot of time doing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, I, it, it can be a problem and I have to sort of, you know, control that aspect. But um, yeah, I mean, I find I find safety engineering fascinating. Um, and uh, there's so much to know whether you're talking about the design of equipment or the uh, human factors aspects or, um, you know, the the in, uh, environmental impact and uh, also the um, uh, interactions with the environment where the equipment is used. All that stuff is just, you know, there's so much to learn. It's uh, it's pretty cool. There, I mean, there's definitely a whole lot to learn. I feel like I've learned a small breadcrumb, a small slice of, of the huge pie that's out there, right? And, and in this industry, we really have to rely on our experts. We have to rely on people that know uh, more than us. And I think sometimes that actually leads to an, a, a dangerous situation because I've talked 
um, you know, randomly polled the internet, and I've just talked to people as well. And I was very curious on where people's safety education comes from, because I know mm -hmm. with myself, my safety education comes partly from my work, but also where my education went. You know, I, I have certification as a TUV functional safety engineer. So that led me to read standards and under, understand where that comes from. But it's mm -hmm. very, very interesting when I when I did a couple random polls in different groups just to try and see where people got their information from. I gave uh, examples of, you know, do you go to YouTube? Because as a, as a generation right now, that's kind of where a lot of our people get information from is, yep. is the Internet, you know, YouTube yep. videos and whatnot. I know personally when I don't know how to bake something or do some mechanical task, I'm going to YouTube to figure out what nuts and bolts I need to play with. So I thought Me maybe too. safety was no different. I thought maybe people would go to manufacturers if they would go to distribution reps. You know, would they go to the, you know, the, the sales people of the industry? Would they seek out third parties like yourself, Doug? Um, and it was very, very interesting. Overwhelmingly, people learned about safety, whether it be functional safety, whether it be, you know, just hazard analysis, whether it be environmental safety from the workplace, from their mentor, from their supervisor. Yep. So then that leads to the question of who taught them. Right. You know, right. It, it's, it's like this. Every company has their own culture. And if the culture is a bad culture, then that slowly just keeps getting propagated. Right. Yeah. So yep. for me, I keep thinking about, you know, my place when I worked in the industry and I saw some some pretty bad things and nobody really corrected me. I don't know. Did, did you see or were you part of um you know what what's been your experience with you know seeing dangers in the workplace so to speak well you know i i can really resonate with what it is you're saying because um i didn't get any formal education in safety engineering um you know i'm going to admit to being a gray hair at this point <laughs> uh you know i i've been in the business now for more than 30 years um, and I had a vision when I started my company uh, that uh, we would somehow help to make workplaces uh, safer and that we could, you know, hopefully make a dent in the kinds of injuries that we see. And, you know, interestingly, April 28th just passed, and that is Canada's National Day of Mourning for injured and, and killed workers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're still seeing hundreds of people killed in the workplace every year yeah. for a variety of reasons. And it's not all happening on machinery, obviously. There are lots of other things that happen. But, um, you know, we've had a very hard time as a country putting a dent in that. And so I think that that part of the difficulty is that there isn't a formal educational process for safety engineers. Yeah. Um, and I've, uh, I'm a charter member of the IEEE's Product Safety Engineering Society. Uh, we've been around since 2004. And one of the things that we've been trying to work on with several universities in the U.S. is to um, actually start a safety, a product safety engineering curriculum hmm. in their programs, whether that's in their normal um, uh, existing courses or that, whether that's something new. And I know that the University um, of Oshawa uh, Institute of Technology has a, a an engineering program like that. Hmm. Um, I haven't talked to anybody there in quite a while. So if they're listening to this podcast, I hope they'll get in touch with us and, <laughs> and update us about what's happening. Um, but as far as I know, they are one of the few universities in Canada that actually has a program like that. 
so that idea of people mentor, being mentored by whoever is there and getting whatever information, good, bad, or ugly, um, is, you know, uh, is really still how that's done. And from my perspective, you know, what first got me interested in this whole thing was uh, when I was a kid and I got fascinated by disasters. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and you know, uh, my dad had this book about all these Canadian disasters that had happened. And so I read about all these terrible things that had happened, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And kind of got fascinated by what went wrong and what could have been done to prevent those things. And that was the early part for me. And then once I got into my life as an engineer, eventually I got to a place where I started to need to use standards. And I discovered that my workplace actually uh, didn't really get standards. Um, You know, we were at at the time then when the big transition happened for me, the company I was working for was using a standard that had been out of date since 1968. And that from their perspective was still the current design standard. Not not Um, uncommon though, right? I mean, you you, even now, right, you're finding companies that are using standards that are dated. And Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes that creates a situation that is unsafe and sometimes you know that dated standard to the updated standard there wasn't a whole lot that was changed right maybe it was a couple words right. maybe it was a new table with uh, a different measurements or they they brought in a different table right. to, to accommodate a very specific situation but at the same time right it's really important for for us uh in the workplace just every sort of companies to have those updated standards i know i feel out of depth when somebody asks me Hey, you know, why do I have to do this? And I look at my standards library and go, oh, I have this one from 2008. I think this one might be outdated. So I feel a little bit hesitant talking to someone when I have a dated standard. So I can I can feel that, you know, when you were in that workplace and you had that dated standard, how kind of you get that kind of icky feeling of, oh, no, like (laughs) what, what have we been missing? Well, and you know, we were designing automation equipment, and the the document we were working to was called uh, uh, JIC, Joint Industrial Council, mm-hmm. uh, 1968. That standard actually eventually became it became NFPA 79. Oh, okay. Um, but the folks that I was working with didn't know that, and so um, so this was the standard that all of us had on our desks. This is what we were using, and at some point, I said to uh, my supervisor, "Hey, you know this thing is way out of date, and in fact, it was withdrawn in the 1970s. This was like 1992." Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "You know, there's a there's a modern version of this. It's NFPA 79. Um, you know, we should go and have a look at that." And uh, and they were baffled about about that whole thing. So that kind of started things for me. And then eventually I got into CE marking and uh, started reading a lot of other standards and, you know, uh, everything went from there. So, you know, this has been my fascination. And I know when I designed my first pieces of equipment in the in the mid 80s, um, you know, I didn't even know what an e-stop circuit was when I first started doing this stuff. And I had to ask people that I worked with, you know, what's how's an e-stop circuit wired? What goes into it? You know, and so that's and of course, they looked at me like I was an idiot because, you know, I was. <laughs> but, but um, you know, over time, you start to learn these things and you learn how people have traditionally done them in the past. And then you see how things evolve. And I mean, those early e-stop circuits that I was designing then were just simple relay circuits. Right. Nothing fancy to them at all. Um, basically, mar- motor start-stop circuits. That's really what they were. And... Um, 
but you know we've evolved from that through you know um, uh, function specific safety relays and then into now into safety PLCs and programmable safety modules and all kinds of happy stuff like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's basically how it's gone for me. It's, and it's funny uh, just talking about eStops, you know, how, how far that conversation has come because you write, <laughs> you run a blog, machinerysafety101.com. Um, yep. I certainly plug that as much as possible. I go to that for a reference because, uh, you know, you're not always at my beck and call. So I do have to go through uh, the, the, the web version of Doug Nix, the, the AI <laughs> version, you know, the, the downloaded intelligence and look at that. And so, again, just kind of keying in on eStop, can you hazard a guess, you know, pun intended, I guess, how many blog posts you've written just on eStops? Um, I think the series on eStops now is up to 14, <laughs> something like that. And I it, figured when I wrote my very first one, uh, the first article was called uh, uh, Emergency Stop. Uh, what's what's so hard about that? And um, <laughs> that that article I expect it to be the one and only. Right. Right. And so now here I am, you know, we start, I started writing the blog in 2008. So, you know, we're now what, 14 years downstream <laughs> and I'm still writing articles on eStop. On eStop. And, and, you know, how difficult is an eStop? You know, I, I throw that question out there just candidly because people often think, well, it's a button uh, and you got some contacts in there and it's going to, it's going to uh, release everything. Mm-hmm. But maybe exactly right as soon yeah. as you as soon as you do that risk assessment as soon as you start getting into that an e-stop turns into much more than the perceived button that stops all things well and the the first question is do you even need one well yeah and uh, and a lot of machine builders don't even go to that question because the the assumption is yes of course you need one of course, right. um and if you're if you're designing to a Type C standard, and yep. if folks aren't aware of what a Type C standard is, that's a machine specific um, standard that re relates just to a particular thing, like a machining center or a conveyor or you know whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that Type C standard will tell you whether or not there for that type of equipment there uh, is a requirement to have a an e stop. So that's the first stop. If you're going to design equipment, you need to figure out is there a Type C. Go there and look and see what it says. And if it says you need an e-stop, then you need one. Yeah. The next step, like you said, is to do the risk assessment, and then that will help you determine what the reliability requirements are for that thing and what conditions you expect it, that it might be used in. Yeah. Um, and again, a lot of machine builders, when I'm reviewing people's risk assessments, you don't see a line item in their risk register that says, you know, this is where we're going to use an emergency stop, and this is what it's for, and this is what the reliability requirements are going to be. I mean, it, when it comes to again, we're 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 keying in on functional safety because I think that's that's where both of us resonate quite quite heavily. Uh, but when it comes to functional safety, right, it's it's all about uh, design and, and and implementation and and like you said, everything doing that ahead of time and, and being able to better understand how you're going to implement that. Right? Again, we're talking about e-stops and and how you put that together and how you build that circuit. I mean, we've seen bad designs. We've seen good designs. Um, you know, I, I think that the funniest thing for me, I think I sent you a picture of that the one time, was there was an e-stop behind uh, a, 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 a physical door. And, and if you open the door all the way, you would have hit yes. the e-stop. And yes. I remember being in that facility, and I, I questioned the workers on that. I said, what, what does that do? 
And they told me it's not that. I'm like, well, why does the door open that way? And then, well, you know, that's the way. But nobody seemed inclined to fix it. It's one of those, uh, have you heard of the story of the 10 monkeys in a cage and there's a banana and a ladder? Have you heard of this? No, I have not okay. heard this story. So th this is the story about uh, the when you hear, well, that's the way we've always done it. Right. So there's 10 monkeys in a room and there's a banana and a ladder. And what ends up happening is every time a monkey goes up the ladder to get the banana, um, they all the monkeys get covered, like just showered with water, sprayed down with water. Okay. So eventually what happens is the culture forms that if you go up the ladder to get the banana, you get beaten up. Okay. So they, they do that. So a monkey goes up the ladder and they get beaten up because they don't want to get showered with water. And what you end up doing is you start removing the monkeys and replacing the new ones. So the new monkey comes in, sees the banana, goes up the ladder, immediately gets beaten up. Doesn't understand right. why, was never showered with water. And eventually you get to the point where now you've replaced all the monkeys. They know not to go up the ladder to get the banana because they'll get beaten up. But nobody understands why right that happens right so it's the same sort of idea of well we're, we do it this way because that's the way we've always done it and i mean that's the reflection that you had in your workplace of well why are we designing it this way you know why are we using this old standard well right because that's the way we've always done it yeah right so it's it's always important right to to just make sure that you're you're improving in the safety culture of, of that workplace and and i I, I can't think of, of too many uh, scenarios where I, I've had a lot of acceptance into the to the safety mindset unless somebody has gone through a bad scenario. A lot of the times I get that resistance because, again, it's the, well, we've always done it this way. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really true. And um, uh, that whole idea of, well, we've always done it that way, so let's not think about it. Um, comes through in other ways. Uh, for instance, uh, one company that I worked for decided that um, it was going to be too much uh, of a problem to try to determine what um, architecture for the safety circuits they were uh, going to include on their equipment was going to be on a machine-by-machine -machine basis. We were designing custom equipment. Um, and so the decision in the controls department was that everything was going to be, uh, they thought, category four. But they didn't really understand what category four meant. Right. In their mind, uh, it was you know the what we used to call control reliable in the <laughs> old days, right? So dual channel, theoretically single fault tolerant, um, not necessarily any diagnostics, but maybe. Right. And uh, and that's what we were we were going to do for everything. And there was no consideration of what the uh, ongoing cost was going to be, what the actual complexities of doing that was going to be. Um, somebody designed a uh, what we call the standard circuit that everybody put in their design packages, and nobody thought further about what was involved in that, what the component selections were, anything else, right? Yeah. So admittedly, this, this uh, situation started before... 2005. So we weren't into the probabilistic version of 13849 yet. We were still basically working with the N954 or uh, 13849 1999. But basically, the you know the the focus was on the structure. Right. And and um, you know I can say that a lot of the safety in our in those architectures comes from the the structure itself, not so much from what you do with the diagnostics and other things, which help. 
but aren't the key thing, right? right? Because the fault tolerance and, and so on comes from the architecture and the component selections. So, you know, you get into that situation where nobody wants to think about the thing because it seems too hard. Right. And uh, and that leaves you in a situation where you end out sometimes with way overkill in your safety systems because the thing that you're building is not that hazardous. And so, you know, what do you need a, a performance level E category four architecture <laughs> for? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and, and other times you blow it completely because you're not thinking about the components that go in the in the box. And so you have a dual redundant architecture, but have you really met the requirements? Yeah. And so, and because nobody's thinking about it, you don't know. And they, and the only way you find out is the thing gets out in the field and hopefully fingers crossed doesn't fail. Right. It doesn't kill anybody, but if it does, then what? Right. Yeah. What's the analysis then? So, uh, and you know, some of my current work involves expert witness work, um, mm. where I get hired by attorneys to to help them understand what's happened in personal injury uh, situations. And I can tell you that all of the projects that have, I've been involved with so far have been fatalities. Um, and um, part of what I look at when I'm doing the analysis is to look at the design of the safety systems and uh, in order to decide did they do the job right. Right. in the first place right um and i have to i have to put my mind into the mindset of the year that the thing was designed and built which is sometimes hard because you know we're we're constantly looking forward in this in this work and trying to deal with what the new thing is that we're that we're working with so sometimes i have to skip back to 2000 2005 to you know 2015 whatever to try to understand what was what was the requirement at that time um, and you see some fairly horrible things mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the kinds of accidents that happen. You know, when you do this kind of work, you uh, you almost always get to see the morgue photos and often accident scene photos and so on. Um, and they are pretty graphic. Yeah. So you, once you've seen that kind of stuff a couple of times, you start to realize that you can't mess around with this stuff. And using the canned approach where we're not going to think about it yeah. really doesn't cut it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, one of the things you talked about was you have to think about the design of the equipment when you're doing that analysis, right? What, when, when, when it was designed and that's, I have a question about that because okay. I, I know the answer. I, well, I'm pretty sure I know the answer because I run into it all the time, right? You know, we talked about, uh, the resistance in the field and, and, you know, how do we overcome that? And, when we design a safety circuit, so whether we're designing in 2015 or 1990, it has to be safe for today. So mm -hmm. people get in their mind uh, because there's so many things in this world, especially when it comes to let's you know provincially things. You know, you you bought a house that has a structure and a and a, a roadway and a driveway that's that's too big by current standards. Well, you know that's the grandfather clause. Right. Is there a grandfather cause when it comes to safety? Uh, that's a hard question. <laughs> I would say that that with new equipment, okay, so if we look if we look at the province of Ontario just as as uh, an example, and I have to say for anybody that's outside of Ontario, Ontario is not representative of the rest of Canada. Sure. Um, we have a, a very odd system here that called the pre-start health and safety review. And I have my own opinions about that. And we could talk <laughs> about that another time if you want. 
Um, but but um, at least in this province, um, from the perspective of the Ministry of Labor, if they're looking at a piece of equipment, they expect that equipment to meet the current legislation, not necessarily the current standards. Right. But the current legislation. Right. So, you know, if you're looking at clauses 24, 25, 26, these are the ones that deal with uh, power transmission uh, guarding and point of operation guarding and so on. If there is a guard there. Yeah. And it prevents access to the hazard. Yeah. Then you've met the legislation. Right. So you can do that with a safety circuit from 1990 or one from 2022. Yeah. And they both meet the legislation. Okay, but the legislation is the minimum. Right. And and so if you get into a liability court, what happens is that the if if the liability lawyers are worth their salt, um, they are going to apply every standard from everywhere in the world that they can find that applies to your product. Right. So now they're going to say, and it's always done based on when the equipment was built, because you can't be expected to update a piece of equipment that's already been sold and is in the field. Right. Um, the owner might do that, but the the original builder is not going to do that. Right. So they're going to look at all those standards. And so that means that a piece of equipment built in the U.S. might have the ANSI standards, but also the ENs and also CSA yep. and also ISO right. uh, and also IEC and all of those standards. Anything that's relevant, we're going to throw all of that. At it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the expectation is that as a machine builder, is, since you're a professional in the industry and you're supplying equipment, you are expected to understand what the standards are that prevail at the time in the world, right. not just in in your little marketplace, unless you're only building it for Podunk, yeah. uh, Ontario, and that's the only, you know, you don't sell outside your little town. Right. Okay, maybe. But but otherwise, if you if you sell your equipment more widely than that, you're going to be in a situation where ev- all the standards that could apply will be applied in a liability case. And if you haven't done your homework, then the lawyers are going to take you to town. Yeah. And it's not going to be good. So so from that perspective, but is there a grandfather clause? Well, as a machine builder, it's whatever applied at the day on the day that you built the equipment. Right. Um, from the point of view of the equipment user, there's nothing that really leans on the owner of the equipment to update it. Right. But but if it's a if it's a safety focused forward looking organization, they're probably going to be thinking about that anyway. That's right. And if there's an opportunity to repair uh, or replace systems, they're going to be upgrading them. Right. And and. You know, the machinery standards, um, at least the international ones anyway, um, are uh, based all of their ideas upon the uh, the concept that there's a 20-year mission lifetime for the controls on a piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. So the machine itself might last a lot longer than that. And, I, you know, I've done uh, pre-start reviews on power presses where the original press was built in the 1930s yeah. and was still working today because, you know, 1,100-ton press – strokes pretty slowly as long as you keep it lubricated that sucker's going to go on for a long time yeah yeah. right uh plus the other thing was in those days the one of the key engineering ideas was that you over designed everything exactly because because they didn't do finite element analysis they didn't do any of that kind of stuff because doing that with a slide rule forget it not happening (laughs) right so so if you weren't sure about the stresses on the equipment you just added more material yeah so now you've got a piece of equipment that's way over designed by modern standards, but the outcome of that is mechanically it's got a 
maybe not infinite, but a very long lifetime. You know, a right. hundred years wouldn't be unusual. So the controls are not like that. Control yeah. systems, you know, you get to a place where you can't buy a processor for your PLC that was, you know, state of the art in, in 1995. You can't get a PLC 5 processor card anymore, probably. Or if you can, it's, you know, $10,000 because there's three of them left on the planet that still work, yeah. right? Um, and same with I.O. cards and, you know, all, all the rest of that stuff. So that 20-year mission life becomes really important. And and so at that point, then, if you've got a machine owner that's replacing or updating their control system every 20 years or so, you should expect to see incremental upgrades in all the so safety systems every 20 years at least. Yeah. So so with a with a proper joint health and safety committee in in a, in a workplace they should be looking at those equipments they should have those mission times in mind they should be uh, constantly because safety is not stagnant right it's a dynamic document it's a dynamic process you have should to be. keep looking at your equipment you can't uh, look at your equipment when it arrived in whenever it was 2000 1940 whatever it be and check the box be yep uh that that worked when it got here it's it's great we're never right. going to touch that right so right. i guess back to my original question about is safety is there a grandfathering in safety and it seems like a yes no i mean in an ideal world it's not because if you were to do the correct steps being that you're monitoring your equipment you're looking after it you're doing the validation you're doing the testing you're going to find the deficiencies compared to the current standards. You're going to find those holes that eventually are going to pop up that you have to, you know, whack a mole, hit them down and, and fix them again. Yep. 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 But if you're one of those people or you're, you're in the environment where when equipment comes in or you do an adjustment and you check a box and you file that away and you don't look at it until the rats have chewed it and they've made a nest out of it <laughs> and you know it's mm -hmm. got the paper documentation is yellow you know you're going to run into problems right you said that you you've been on the other end being the the expert witness you you've seen those those horrific yep. accidents and you've had to uh, endure looking at uh, or 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 speaking to how those those prosecutors are coming back to okay here's all the standards that apply what have you done right did you right. only do the minimum right? right i mean who whoever who stands for the minimum as people in this world that buy stuff you don't expect the minimum you want the best right you want to pay lowest dollar for the best you don't expect you know when you when you get a doctor you hope that your doctor wasn't you know the one that just scraped by you want the best you know when you got the cardiologist working on your heart you don't want yep. the guy that you know he's done four heart surgeries and they turned out okay you want the guy yep. that's done the heart Nobody's surgery yet. that that's going to add 20 years to your life right right so right again you're talking about there's there's an expectation to do the minimum but that's that's just a saying this is the baseline right who who wants to buy lowest quality equipment so the the laws and the standards represent the minimum requirement so right. there's a lot of a lot of designers that i run into that feel like standards are some unattainable maximum you know that should be thought about but you know nobody really does that because it's just too hard too expensive <laughs> whatever um no that's the minimum right and and standards are written from the perspective of best practices um by groups of people that have you know between them 
thousands of years of experience in industry. Right. So these are not uh, crazy un un unobtainable things. We're not talking about building parts out of unobtainium here. We're talking <laughs> about uh, the minimum requirements, simple stuff, relatively simple stuff that should be done all the time. And, you know, as as people um, working in industry, we all go into our, our, our work days with the same attitude that we use at home generally, uh, which is you expect the things that you buy and, and use to be safe. Yeah. And, and we have developed that safety culture in our society through the certification processes and so on that are used uh, to make sure that consumer products generally are safe. Yeah. Um, they're not universally safe either. And that there's lots of cases that we can talk about where, you know, consumer products go horribly astray too. <laughs> but the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that industrial equipment doesn't uh, have the same benefit. Um, there, from the point of view of machinery safety, Canada has no laws that explicitly require a manufacturer to build safe equipment. Yeah. Okay. The 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 uh, obligation for safety lies with the ma with the uh, employer. So whoever buys or leases that piece of equipment, that's the person who's responsible for making sure that it's safe enough for use in the workplace. Well, most employers don't have the expertise on staff to have the faintest clue if the machine they just bought is safe enough. Some guys do. The big companies do, but most of the medium and small places forget it. They don't know. They assume. I want to jump in what just because it's really, really important because I run into it again. You know, we're talking about the resistance in the workplace to change and how you overcome right. that. Um, you, you mentioned that it's the employer has to ensure that it's safe. Now, right. Is there any way again, I'm going to talk about Canada. Is there okay. any legal way to transfer that liability being that the most common uh, uh, preconception is again we talked about it a little bit earlier for Ontario we have this PHSR document again yep let's not yep. get too rattled into that but a lot of people believe that if I get a PHSR document this is my golden ticket that transfers liability from me to the engineer who's reviewed it or who, who the expert or whoever that is yep uh, no <laughs> no then no. let me finish the question <laughs> Finish the question and then I'll say it again. <laughs> so is there any way to transfer liability of I have to make sure this equipment is safe from me as the owner to another person, persons or company? No, you okay. can't. Yeah. Um, and that's true with certification as well. This right. is something that companies that get their products certified don't understand very well either. Um, just because you go to the trouble of taking your product to a lab like CSA or Intertech or whoever you want to go to, and you get it tested and certified to a standard and they license you to put their mark on it, you're still liable and responsible for the safety of your product. All they're doing by licensing you the mark is saying, we checked this product against this standard and yeah. we believe it's okay. Yeah. But they don't carry any liability yeah. for any any injuries or accidents that happen with that product. You do as the manufacturer, 100% can't delegate it to anybody, thanks. Yeah. Um, the only thing that you can do as an equipment buyer is you can delegate the um, pre-start review to someone outside your organization if you want to. Right. And so that means you can download the doing of the 
pre-start to the equipment supplier and they can hire an engineer can, who can do that work and provide a report and that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't transfer the liability for for the safety of the equipment to anybody else except the employer. Right. So the, the, the feel-good sign-offs that we see in the workplace of engineers signing off on, on the PSR or, or signing off that uh, safety has been implemented, that signing off by a third party does not transfer liability. That's more of a, um, a feel-good service that, yes, I've checked your work, and yes, I think that you've done it correctly. But if there's an incident, that engineer, that third party, whoever, again, talking about Canada because U.S. international might yep. be a little bit different, that, yep. that third party is not liable in any fashion. Right. Um, it, it, again, if it's, a, if it's an engineer, again, in, in Ontario, they're governed by their own. And if they get into an incident, that's an own internal investigation. But in terms of the Maybe. acts... Pardon? Maybe. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> Maybe. And only only if um, whoever hired them complains to PEO. Right. Right. But there's no other there's no other monitoring process. And one of the big difficulties that we have with the pre-start, and I promise I won't go too far down this road, but the um, the only person who's given the authority to decide whether or not um, they have the expertise to do a pre-start review is the engineer who wants to do the pre-start review. Right. There is no third party check. There's no certification for that. There's yeah. no specific education for that. Yeah. Um, and so it is to that individual engineer to decide, do I have the expertise or not? Right. Um, and am I willing to take on the risks that are inherent in doing that work? And right. so, you know, when you go out to hire a pre-start engineer, you have to have some kind of confidence as a, an employer that the person who's offering the service is qualified. Right. But the truth is we're 22 years downstream. There are still guys out there selling their stamps yep. for a couple hundred bucks and they'll write you a one or two page PSR report. Yep. And, um, and as long as nothing happens on that equipment, it probably won't matter. Right. Um, but you know, if the minister of labor comes in and asks to see your report and you hand them one of those, they'll tell you to get it done again by somebody competent. Yeah. Um, and then there are guys who write, you know, 150 page reports, which are almost too long to be useful. Right. Uh, they may be excellent. They may have lots of good information in them, but they may be too, too detailed and too long or not written in a way that a lay person can understand them. And then there are quite a few in the middle. I mean, it's like everything else. If you apply the normal curve to it, they're in the middle, you know, you've got probably 65 to, you know, maybe 95% of the people that are practicing that are reasonably good. Right. Right. And in the very, in the, in that uh, first standard deviation around the median, you're going to have a bunch of people who are really good. Yeah. Right. So it's a question of how do you find those people? And almost always that's word of mouth. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's very, very difficult, um, in, in the, the workplace to, to validate the person that you're getting to do that third party certification, because right again, in, in Ontario, I don't know if it's all of Canada, but Ontario, the, the odds are stacked against you where again, the liability is on the owner to make sure that the person you're hiring is qualified to do the job. Which I think right. is a little bit backwards because how do you, as a person who has no education, or maybe you have some education, supposed to qualify an expert? It, se yeah, it seems a little hard. unfair. It's pretty hard. <laughs> it it's pretty seems hard. a little unfair. 
the the other thing to know is that um you know despite the fact that we still have this uh system in place for 20 years because it first started in 2000 uh so 22 years downstream the ministry of labor does not uh provide statistics that show um that there has been any decrease in injuries in the workplace due to the psr hmm. process interesting so so and i think part of it is they don't measure it um but there's no way for us to determine standing where we are today whether or not that that pre-start process that employers have been paying for now for 22 years yeah. has actually provided any direct benefit in terms of reductions in workplace injuries and so on because if you look at the fatalities and injuries in the province over the last 22 years they haven't changed a lot yeah so so the question i have is is this system even doing its job or is it something that is uh, put in place by the government because it's a feel-good thing, right. like you said? Right. Yeah. It makes it makes people feel like something's being done. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you spend tens of thousands of dollars getting it done, and it's not anything more than a feel-good. Right. That that, right? that kind of begs the question of what what do we what do we feel um, you know safety needs like what 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 is what it has to change or what do we need to adapt to make safety more accepting in the workplace right we've talked a little bit about some of the resistances that we see uh mm -hmm. you know this is the way we've always done it sort of thing um you know what what do we need to change is it the documentation is it the enforcement is it the education you know where do you start is it all of them right is it is it a is it a multi-pronged approach but really what what is going to have i think the you know the the quadrants right you talk about highest gain highest cost versus lowest gain lowest cost right we're always talking about that median hitting that bandwidth as you know you mentioned about the psr you know right in the middle you're going to have that sweet spot so where's that sweet spot of what needs to change in order to get the most gains as a again accepting safety in the workplace right this is this is what we're talking about the industrial s word people think that when you say safety it's a bad word you know you see safety first everywhere and then you you go into the to the workplace and um you know pp is always talked about and nobody's wearing glasses right and there's lots of people rocking around with checkboards being all you know you're going to get written up for for wearing glasses so what what do you feel needs to change in order for uh us to be a little bit more uh, accepting in the workplace and stop viewing this as the thing that's getting in the way of me doing my job right right well you know from the machine builder standpoint um europe has taken a much more holistic approach to things than what we've done mm -hmm. um the the liability directive in europe says that manufacturers are um required to only sell products which are safe so <laughs> that that legal obligation and actually the language they use is um that the uh, product is uh, will provide the level of safety that a person is entitled to expect okay so that's a that's a huge statement um, but that that uh, level of safety that a person is entitled to expect is defined by the directives that apply to the product. Right. So if you meet the essential health and safety requirements of the applicable directives, then in theory, you've provided uh, at least the level of safety that a person's entitled to expect. OK, right. so from that point of view, they've moved the onus for safety onto the manufacturer of the equipment, which is where it should be, because that's the cheapest, easiest most effective place to do risk reduction and risk control. 
Because yeah. trying to paste it on after the equipment's already built and in somebody's workplace is the the worst bar none the worst time to do it because it's the most expensive it gets in the way of starting production you know you've got a production schedule that's supposed to start on the 15th of june the machine shows up for installation on the 15th of may and you find out that now you have to gut the safety system and replace it and now it's six months yeah and so your investment in that piece of equipment was predicated on the idea you were starting production on the 15th of june yeah so now you're losing money for six months and it's costing you money to update that system. So that's that's thing one. If you want to reduce costs and make uh, safer machinery more widely acceptable, the place that that has to happen is at the manufacturer. Okay. That's thing one. Um, from the point of view of workplace safety, um, we've come a long way since the beginnings of workplace safety in Ontario. So the, the first uh, Occupational Health, Health and Safety Act, uh, if you can call it that, was 1833 in the UK. Mm. And in in uh, Ontario, our first one was around 1884. Um, it was called the Factories Act. Um, it was mostly concerned with limiting the hours of work for women and children, but there were some other things uh, in there. And um, then, you know, in the 30s and 40s, we got into this very paternalistic uh, safety perspective uh, that was, uh, you know, that you can see in the work of people like Heinrich and so on, who, um, you know, basically assumed that the workers were stupid and lazy. And so if they got hurt, it was their fault. Um, and you still run into that attitude in some workplaces today. Uh, sadly, it still exists. Um, but basically, we've gone from that where uh, you had very prescriptive safety instructions and procedures and things that were that were given to the workers and then subsequently ignored. Um, to now we're moving into what's called safety differently or safety two, depending on who you talk to. Um, the work of people like Todd Conklin and Sidney Decker and um, some of these folks who um, are really looking at the fact that the people that are at the sharp end of the stick, the people that are actually doing the work, often understand the risks better than anybody else does. Um, and so they have to have direct influence on how safety is uh, is implemented in the workplace. So you can't just lay down a set of rules and say, this is what it's gonna be. You need to understand how the work is done. You need to understand the systems of work that are used in the workplace because systems of work frequently put workers into dangerous situations that they don't have a way out of. Right. Um, and so if you can actually analyze the systems of work and provide safer ways to do things in that, you can actually end up with a much, much, much safer uh, workplace and uh you know if people are interested in in that side of things uh todd conklin does a, a podcast called the uh, safety differently uh podcast um and uh he's also got another one called uh, pre-accident investigations which is pretty good um and sydney decker's written a bunch of books conklin's written some, a bunch of books um there are a few other people in australia that have done some really good work that i could recommend as well if people are are keen to learn about that stuff so I think that it's that that change in mindset to working with the stakeholders, working with the people that are doing the work to develop that understanding of how the work is done and how it needs to be done, where you can eliminate risk in that in that uh, workflow. Uh, and oftentimes what you find is that by eliminating risk, you also improve efficiencies because you can get rid of uh, things that you're doing that don't actually contribute to what it is you're trying to do and put people in harm's way. 
Um, and so if you do all that stuff, you end up with a workplace that is uh, more productive, has better morale, is safer to work in, therefore has lower OHS costs. And so you get productivity gains, you get cost uh, decreases, and you get OHS cost decreases. And it basically benefits everybody. And it takes a, it does take some capital input to make that happen because you need the right people to implement these systems. Um, and you need some time to think about this stuff and develop the right approaches. But if you do those things, the net benefit is huge. So. So it's a, it's a lot of, a lot of buy-in, right? It's a, it's a lot about convincing people that this is, it's, it's, it's different from the 1940s authoritative approach right. of you must do this, this, and this, as it's it's more of a conversation now. We we need you guys from the plant floor to the CEO to buy into this kind of mindset. We need you to understand that the reason we're doing XYZ, you know, why you have to report slip trips and falls, why, you know, we need to wear these gloves when we're working with this metal, why we have to have a hard hat in this uh, construction zone is because these are the real possible outcomes. You know, 99 out of 100 times, um, working days, nothing's going to happen. But do you right. want to risk, again, the risk analysis that comes back all the time is does does the inconvenience, perceived inconvenience, outweigh the detriment of the action, right? Well, and and the sad thing that I see, and this is human nature, is that you know we tend to not believe that something is necessary if no harm is, has happened right it, it's confirmation bias right it's clearly what we're doing is safe because nobody's died right so okay so then maybe i don't need my respirator today or maybe i don't need you know i don't need to follow that procedure exactly the way it's written because you know really we've done it other ways and it's it's been fine um until it isn't and at that point now you've already got somebody hurt or dead yeah. Um, or maybe a bunch of people hurt or dead uh, because really it didn't seem like it was going to be a problem. And so there, there is always um, a discipline uh, aspect to this uh, because you have to make sure that there is uh, that there is some order and operation to how things are done, um, and that you can be sure that you know procedures are followed once you figure out what they ought to be and how they should be done. And, you know, that's that's part of just um, keeping an orderly workplace, I think. Uh, but it doesn't want to be pater paternalistic and heavy handed, because mm -hmm. if you do it that way, you're going to get pushed back and then you're in the soup twice over. Yeah. So and for, for me, when I think about it, and I've never had the joy or pleasure of trying to run a company or, or a factory, is how do you combat complacency? Because. 365 days a year, you know, let's say somebody works 280 days of those a year and they're mm -hmm. always doing the same task, the same job. They always have to put on the vest. They always have to put on the fall arrest this way before they perform their task. Mm -hmm. You become complacent. You become nose blind of, you know, why are we doing this? The, the mind numbing, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier, humans are problem solvers. You know, we want right. to be challenged. And when you're not challenged in the workplace, you become complacent. You don't think about why you're doing something. And the problem becomes, I think I'm going to switch to a factory set, uh, setting uh, because you, you mentioned another person's name. I do apologize. But where they looked at people as a resource, right? 
they're no different than the contactor when they run out or they die that's just part of the resource right but a lot of times you know we've gotten away from viewing people as a resource thank goodness i value my life i value my friend's life i value all my acquaintances and people that i don't know i value human life but when when you're doing a monotonous job in a factory because in a factory every person is another small cog that's working with the automation and you're doing the same job day in and day out and you become proficient at it now you become yep you become uh, profitable for that company to be doing that job that efficiently. But you become complacent in how you do that job because we're not robots. We're not going to do the same job the same way. There's going to be some variances. And it's those right. variances in our complacent mindset that creates the danger, that creates the harm. So the opposite thinking is, well, how do we make them not complacent? Well, we move them around. We change their job and their tasks. But now we no longer, as a factory owner, gain the productivity that we have from that person because you know they got so efficient at doing that one job and now we've changed the job and now that person has to learn a new job. So there has to be some sort of balance when it comes to safety in the workplace where you challenge people enough on a day-to-day -day way Mm -hmm. to change safety ever so slightly and i'll give an mm -hmm. example which was really cool i was just there i was in a, it was in an automotive factory and uh, i went to look at a piece of machinery to talk to a customer about what type of interlocks they can use in that application and, and how they right. can benefit from those and walking back um there was a song playing and i kind of jokingly talked to the guy i said what is it the ice cream ice cream truck coming today what's what's going on he goes, well, actually, every day they change the song for when the machine is down. Oh, okay. And the yep. only people that know what the song is going to be is uh, the production manager. So the production managers, as part of their introduction for that day, get told what the song is or whatever. Okay. So that creates, you know, because the everything okay is alarm, right? I mean, we see so many times where people learn how to defeat those buzzers because it goes off so many times or turn off the light because it's, you know, I've I've seen that light. It's been on 30 times. <laughs> well, I mean, what we really should be doing is fixing the problem, but become nose blind, right? Become complacent to it. So I thought that yeah. was actually a really cool way of making sure that we're challenging and engaging the, the, the people in the workplace by using a different song every day. I mean, they could have, it could just be a rotation of 10 to 12 songs, you know, five work days. Every day is essentially going to be different. And I thought, what a really neat way to make sure that people are paying attention, but you're not changing the task so much that they have to learn a new skill. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see a study on that to see if it's actually effective in doing that. It On, on its surface, it seems like it probably would be. I, I don't know. I can't say how uh, effective that would be. Uh, you know, when we're talking about human factors, we always talk about uh, mental underload and overload, mm -hmm. right? So underload and overload are both equally bad. And so if you've got somebody doing the same dull job all the time, uh, they fall into that underload situation and they may be able to do the job by rote. But if anything changes, yep. they're screwed yep. because they're they're not going to react to it because they're not even going to perceive the problem until it's too late. Um, also, the because humans are are notably poor at doing things consistently, <laughs> we're great, great 
problem solvers. I mean, the reason we're an apex predator is because we are really, really good at solving problems, but we are really, really bad at doing things consistently. And that's where the, the whole discipline thing comes in, right? You've got to have some method of enforcing a way of doing things. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, changing people from job to job is a good way to give people a little bit of challenge in their day. Um, you know, admittedly, once you've been through the same three or four uh, task sets, you get to a place where you're pretty complacent with those things too, unless something changes. Right. Um, and uh, and so I think there has to be something done in the workplace to help engage people with how to make things better and how to keep them their the problem solving part of their brain engaged with what it is they're doing. Um, and whether that means that you task them with some QC activities or something where they have to be looking at product every now and then looking for certain things or, you know, doing certain tests or whatever it happens to be. There's lots of things that can be done to help keep people's minds engaged depending on who they are and what it is they want to do. There are some folks that want to slide into that dull humdrum thing and stay there. And there's nothing that you can do for those folks, I right. don't think, um, because they will resist most things that try to take them out of that. Right. Right. Um, people seek safety and consistency in their lives, um, even though the thing that keeps our brain alive is exactly the opposite of that. <laughs> the time the time when people are sharpest and most engaged are uh, are those times when they feel really threatened yeah. and unsafe. Yeah. Right. Because all of your fight or flight systems kick in. I mean, this is tens of thousands of years of evolution um, that is used to dealing with hazards in life like tigers and lions and bears. Right. Yep. Um, and so those systems are there for a reason. And so we seek the, that the comfort of safety and consistency and what our body actually needs is to be scared to death once in a while. <laughs> Um, and so that, that makes it difficult because obviously you don't want to put people's lives in jeopardy in the workplace. That's no. not the thing you want to do. No. Um, and people are exposed to risks in the workplace actually involuntarily from the perspective that, yeah, you choose to take that job and work for that employer. But once you sign that contract and you start working for them, they can expose you to whatever they want to expose you to. And you don't really have a lot of say in that other than to quit. Right. That's really your only other option. Right? right. And and yeah, Canada believes in the internal responsibility system. And theoretically, the person on the at the tip of the spear has final say over whether they're going to do dangerous work or not. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of circumstances where people have uh, refused danger, what they felt was dangerous work and subsequently ended up being forced to do it anyway because the Ministry of Labor came in and said, we don't think it's it's dangerous work. And so now the work refusal is over and you need to get the task done. Mm. And at that point, the only choice that person is left with is quit or do the work. Right, right. So – so that exposure to hazards in the workplace is something that we all accept on the benefit of having employment. Hmm. And um, and so from the point of view of protecting people, this is why it's the employer's responsibility. And, you know, we were talking earlier about um, the liability associated with with equipment safety and so right. on. 
everything comes back to the general duty clause. So if you look in Ontario, if you look at the Occupational Health and Safety Act, Section 25-2H, uh, you look at the, the general duty clause, it says that the, the employer is responsible to take all reasonable precautions to protect the health and safety of the worker. Right. So that's the bottom line. I don't care what any other regulation says. Um, that's the bottom line. The employer is responsible to take all reasonable precautions to protect the health and safety of, of a worker. So what is that? And the only way you know that is to do risk assessments, yep. to have the conversations with the workers who are doing the work, to understand the products, processes, and, and uh, equipment that you're using in the workplace. And if you understand all that stuff, now you begin to get a bit of a picture of what the actual risks are that you're putting people in front of. Right. And that then is what drives the rest of these discussions around uh, human factors and how do we keep people engaged and all the rest of that. Because depending on the degree of risk, somebody's in a really low risk job. You know, if the worst thing you're going to run into is, uh, you know, a paper cut or, you know, stabbing yourself with a, with a thumbtack, that's one thing. Um, on the other hand, there are ergonomic issues that go with that, right? People yep. that have been driving keyboards for 30 years start to have back, neck, and shoulder problems because that's what they've been doing for 30 years, right? Yeah. Uh, speaking from experience. <laughs> um, and, um, but, you know, on the other hand, if you've got somebody that is welding inside uh, tanks, that's a whole other thing. And there's a whole other set of risks that go along with that. And people that do dangerous work all the time become complacent about how risky that work is because right. they do it all the time. Right. So that goes back to the education question and and actually training people on what the risks are, what we know about it, how things have changed. There have been studies done just recently about um, the, effect, the effects of uh, welding fume on uh, pregnant women because we have more and more women entering the workforce and there are a lot of women who are welders now. Yeah. And there will be some that are pregnant when they go to work. So what do we know about what happens to that stream of metal fumes that comes off a, a, a weld as you're doing it, what impact does that have on the woman's health, on the baby's health, yeah. uh, and so on? We need to know those things. So yeah. there are people studying that stuff. And it, the question is, how quickly can we get that information from the academics doing that work into the workplace and actually use it for something beneficial? And and that's the other challenge, right? Again, kind of going back to safety. Safety is all about preventative measures, right? So, uh, you know, you, you put something in place to prevent somebody from getting access to that or, or you, uh, you're, wearing, you're wearing PPE to prevent uh -huh. that hazard from getting any closer than it already is. And, and I agree with you that I think, um, you know, I, I kind of laid out a few prongs in terms of, you know, enforcement, uh, education. And, and I really believe that I think education is the best way, because if somebody is educated, uh, you know, you talked about education in terms of getting buy-in from the workplace, right? They're mm -hmm. educated on why they need to do that. But if mm -hmm. we're able to educate, the earlier we're able to educate, the better off we are, because that is the most preventative measure, right? Put the knowledge in the workers' hands so that they right. can understand and relate. If all you've ever known is you know you're working on that machine lathe and that chuck spins at 2000 rpms and you need to make the adjustment you open the door you know you right. know that you're not supposed to have loose clothing you're not supposed to reach over but uh you know bob distracted me for a couple seconds and i reached over for the new bit and i got wound up into that uh, chuck yep 
So yep. I think education, in my mind, is the best thing that, that safety really needs to, to be more accepting in the workplace. Now, obviously, I think uh, a lot of schools have done a great job with safety, right? Uh, you know, if you're working in a trade school, they teach you about electrical safety. You know, you know that in and out about, you know, how you throw a disconnect and where you stand and, and what to look out, out for, the thermals you need to equip. Um, you know, if you're if you're going through environmental, they teach you about um, is it still Wemis? Anyways, the hazard identification. Yep. They yep. teach you about that. Now, for me, again, and I think for you as well, functional safety it always seems to feel like a footnote a lot of the times at at, yeah. at education. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, they're they're doing a, a mechatronics or a robotics course, and machine safety is uh, half a day. Right. At, are, are are your feelings uh, you know i see you agreeing with me but have you seen um institutions and education workplaces or sorry education um avenues start to open up about uh educating the workplace i know personally yourself you run uh an education course right i mean that's i do yeah that's that's part of through uh through your website is that on the machine safety 101 uh, um it well it's actually linked from both the blog and from our corporate website okay um but the the url is uh is courses.compliancesight.ca okay um but um so there's there's a couple of thoughts that i had while you were talking about this the first one is that a lot of people once they get done their formal education um don't get any further education Okay. Um, and you know, if you're, if you're working as a professional, most of us are, are, um, either our licensing bodies or our professional associations have some kind of continuing professional development requirements where just to maintain your license or maintain your certification, you have to show that you've done a certain amount of CPD every year. Right. Right. Um, even that the organizations have difficulty with some members getting them to actually do the CPD work because people get educated and then they just want to go and do their drone job every day right. and they don't want to think, right? So, okay, if you're one of those folks, sorry, um, you know, it's too bad because your potential is being lost, in right. my opinion. Right. Um, I personally love learning new stuff. I mean, you know, I have this pretty insatiable curiosity and I, I have a bad habit of uh, following trails and breadcrumbs. So I, I get interested in something and I'll just continue to read about it and study on it until I feel like I understand it well enough to answer the questions that I had. Uh, that sometimes takes a long time. Um, and when it comes to things like functional safety, I'm not done yet. Um, and I've been studying functional safety since the mid nineties. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's always something new to learn and, um, and there's always new developments. You know, we, we just spent the last couple of years on a new, uh, edition of 13849. So right now the current edition is 2015. Yep. Um, we have a draft that is, um, has been finished now for a couple of months and we're waiting for ISO to publish it. And there are some issues with Europe and how that's. There's interactions between ISO and the European Union in terms of how documents that get harmonized for European usage are done. And um, that's another whole topic that we could spend an, an hour or two talking about. Um, but anyway, the, at the moment, that 
the publication of that document is stalled. And there's a couple of other ISO standards related to machinery safety. Uh, 14.119 is another one, 13.850 is another one. Um, those standards are all stuck in limbo right now, waiting for uh, Europe to finish their um, review of the documents and, and approving them. Mm -hmm. So so the, the difficulty that we have is that, um, you know, changes happen all the time and improvements happen all the time. And one of the reasons why these standards that we work with are on a five-year revision schedule is because we're constantly chasing the latest things that are going on in, in technology. Our right. documents are typically at least five years out of date, the day they're published. Because, you know, we're, we're dealing with, with a drafting cycle that often takes 18 months to two years or more. So what was new and keen when we started the, the, revision is now old news right right and that's just that's just the reality of the standardization cycle and how it works um so you know having people adapt themselves to those new changes and uh educate themselves on an ongoing basis is something that has to happen and it has to be an individual um thing that's done you have to have the impetus within yourself to make those choices mm -hmm. and to learn about that stuff because if you don't nobody's going to hand it to you yeah um the other thing is that the um the post-secondary schools uh, don't really treat safety engineering as a discipline per right. se most of them don't. Um, I've been a, a member of the IEEE Product Safety Engineering Society since 2004, and we've been trying to um, implement product safety engineering curricula in post-secondary schools in the uh, around the world um, since 2004. Um, and there are a couple of universities in the U.S. that have programs like that, um, and I believe in Ontario the only one that I am personally aware of is the one that's at the University of Oshawa Institute of Technology. Um, and UOIT's had a, a program there since um, the early 2Ks. So, you know, there are some schools that have it, but, you know, a lot of our big engineering schools don't seem to be paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm talking to you, University of Waterloo and Queens <laughs> and U of T, um, you know, those schools have not yet really wrapped their heads around the fact that this is a discipline mm -hmm. and and it is a it is a specialized area of practice that takes some explicit training i mean i don't know an engineer that got trained in in risk assessment in school no that's something you have to learn about after the fact or even simple tools like fmea yeah right well if you're doing functional safety work or you're doing any other kind of engineering work, FMEA is fundamental. It's like a pencil. It's something you're going to use. <laughs> it's guaranteed, right? So unless you're in a place where um, where you take the time to learn these things because you want to, you're probably not going to get it handed to you on a platter. Yeah. So so I think that's that's one of those things. We need to expand education for uh, for young engineers uh, coming into the field. We need to provide those kinds of curricula in the post-secondary schools. Um, but we also need to provide that information, uh, those learning opportunities um, post school. Right. You know, whether you're, you know, postgraduate school, post uh, secondary school, post tertiary school, whichever you're you're talking about. Um, and that's why I run the the training 
center that I have on, on my website because there is a ton to know about these topics. And so, you know, I teach courses on risk assessment on um, uh, 60204, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, European International Electrical Safety Standard. Um, I have a new course on uh, machine guarding that I launched just a little while ago uh, that's uh, based in the ISO standards but is really broadly applicable. Um, and I have a functional safety course that's going to be coming online in the in the next few weeks uh, on thirteen eight forty nine, and actually how to do the work. And you know there are issues with some of these standards. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I sit on the committees for a whole bunch of these <laughs> standards. Um, thirteen eight forty nine has some um, internal conflicts and logical leaps that are necessary to use it that are not well explained. Yeah. Um, and part of that's because the underlying concepts uh, are pretty complicated. And so, um, you know, you'd take a document that's already 150 pages and blow it out to 300 if you were going to try to train people in that standard and how to do this stuff. Uh, 13849 is supposed to be the, the simplified functional safety standard for yeah. use with machinery. Yeah. Um, and if you take the time to read 61508, you'll go, yeah, 1349 is way simplified. Let's just go back to doing that because that was really easy. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> my preference as well is to use 13849. So. But, but the, you know, as committees, we are working really hard to try to make our documents as readable as possible and to solve problems yeah. um, that readers bring to us. So the other thing I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast about is if you're having trouble understanding what's in a standard, figure out who's responsible for the standard and ask the question. Yeah. Because unless the uh, the committees hear from readers, hey, you know, this clause in Z432, I've read that thing six times. It doesn't make any sense to me. Can you help me understand it? <laughs> well, I, the beautiful thing, at least with CSA, is the, the CSA communities of interest, you can actually pose questions like that, and you'll hear from people like me, people that sit on the committees, yeah. who will explain to you what clause 6.3.6.4 actually means. Yeah. Um, and that's because we were in the room when we wrote the thing, and we sweated through, you know, should this be and or uh, or the in Shall, in the sentence. Must. You know, we know <laughs> we we have fought our way through all that stuff. And if you knew the hours that we spend arguing over the difference between shalls and shoulds, and you know, how do we want this the our readers to to interpret and and implement this clause? Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing sometimes couple hours over one word choice sometimes <laughs> seriously so so you know there's all of that that goes into it and you know uh, doing this kind of work inevitably impacts your own personal mindset as well yeah i know that that for me um you know since i've been doing risk assessments since 1995 or so it's just part of my thinking yeah. Every day, no matter what I'm doing, there's a part of my mind that's running a risk assessment on what it is that I'm doing. Um, and that's even happened with my partner. I mean, she and I have been working together since 2000, you know, her background's in psychology, but we talk risk assessment every day yeah. on different topics. And I mean, through the through the pandemic, especially, we've been talking risk assessment and probabilities and, you know, what are the likelihoods of this, that and the other thing. Um 
and that's just part of our mindset. Even putting up Christmas lights or doing other things around the house. I mean, there's always this this background risk assessment that's running. So, so for me, that's probably one of the biggest things that's happened. Yeah. Um, it doesn't keep me from taking risks. I ride a motorcycle. I love riding a motorcycle. I won't give that up. Is it dangerous? Hell yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that I go into it understanding the risks. Yes. I know what can happen. Yes. I know what I need to do to protect myself. I also know that every time I get on the bike, I'm throwing the dice. And there's a possibility that this time will be the last time. Right. And and so that means that I take steps every time I ride to try to mitigate those risks. Right. Because um, there's never there's never a zero risk environment in anything we do, right? Whether it's there's the only, workplace. There's only one way you get to zero risk. Right. You have to be dead. Yeah. If that's... you're dead, the risk is zero. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Only time. <laughs> if you're brain in a jar, then you're you're okay. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. I was I listening to you talk about how uh safety education needs to be its own niche curriculum. And I sure I thought that was such a novel deal. I, I I know personally I've been working with some trade schools to develop some courses for them. So that they can start teaching that there's some progressive schools out there that are that are actively engaging us with us. And just the idea of that becoming its own specialized course, uh, I, I. I didn't even think that other people were thinking about that, uh, but what a what a smart way. And, and, and I'm also trying to think of, you know, how do we how do we make safety more accessible? Right. I mean, the post education system. Sure. That's great. Uh, that's that's one avenue. Um, we're in the information age, right? Because people constantly talk about this is the age of technology, the information age, right? Industry mm -hmm. 4.0 and whatever other jab mm -hmm. words. And you're talking about because you have an interesting perspective, you sit on the committees, you talk about, you know, uh, writing these standards and making sure that there's a black and white interpretation, that there's not a gray interpretation. So I often wonder... <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes we deliberately write a gray interpretation in there okay for All good right. reason <laughs> that's, that's fair enough i i often wonder um is there enough access to information for this because again when i talk to people in the workplace of how do they learn they learn from their mentors right but, you know where where's the drive to learn from it, the accredited source i mean myself i'm a tuv functional safety engineer I went through that course that was offered through my employer. That wasn't even something right. I was seeking. They just, they approached me and said, Hey, do you want to do this? And went, yeah, yeah that actually but, sounds But if really you'd cool. had to do that yourself, I mean, those, those FS Eng courses are usually three grand ish, something like that. Yeah. yeah unless your employer's paying for it, most people aren't going to do that. Right. So is it, is it one of these things that, um, we're, we're kind of in this flux where, there's value associated with the expertise because we're such a niche market where right. the the knowledge is in let's say a handful of people. That's that's grossly misunderstood, but it's in a handful sure. of people. So the value of that information has a cost. So now we're charging so much. But when you look at at other things, like I mean, you look at mathematics, addition, subtraction. That information is universal because it's taught everywhere. If we right. start seeing that taught everywhere, um, do we do we see a, a decrease in in um, safety resistance in in the workplace? Hmm. I mean, my job might go away. That would suck. 
obviously I might have to do this podcast full time. I'd have more people to talk to, but I mm-hmm. mean, it's, you know, just as pontificating about uh, fantastical ideas is, 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 are we in an information age where safety is still kind of secluded and, and, and locked away? Well, and, and I think too, that sometimes there's an attitude about safety. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's the, it's the nerd in the white coat who's trying to prevent <laughs> you from doing things the way you want to do things. Um, it's the paternalistic attitudes. It's all that kind of stuff. And so there's, and, and sadly, sometimes I see um, people that get drawn into this kind of work, and particularly uh, compliance engineering and regulatory engineering. You get guys who are kind of failed in their primary um, course, uh, career path. You know, right. somebody yep. who's a failed engineer or a failed manager who discovers that you know they can gain a lot of power by knowing how to run a checklist on a particular standard and they're going to beat you over the head with that thing right. and that's their that's their that's their trip right and folks like that do uh, massive damage to the work that the rest of us who are actually passionate and engaged and care about this stuff um, are trying to do it's it's a big problem it's not anything that i even have the faintest clue how to fix um uh, i wish i did um because i'm not i'm not convinced that introducing more and more qualifications and groups of letters that people can put after their names actually does anything more than um, give the certification organizations money every right. year and um and make it harder for people to break into areas of practice where they'd really like to be Right. Because if you can't get a job doing any kind of safety engineering without a, a particular set of letters after your name, uh, that becomes a problem. Right. Right. Um, because not everybody, especially if you're just coming out of school, you know, you're not going to graduate from engineering school and then, and also have a CFSE. It's not going to happen. Right. Right. Um, and so it's it's going to be a number of years before somebody can have enough engineering practice under their belt to license just to get their basic license. And then, oh yeah, if you want to CFSE, well, we need another three grand, please. And then, you know, we'll do that. And then, okay, now you can practice as a, as a functional safety person. No, that doesn't make sense to me. You've got to have the ability to get in, to get some mentorship from people like yourself, myself, others who are knowledgeable, Yeah. Um, begin to learn your trade Yeah. and learn the, learn the, the discipline. And then at some point, if it makes sense for you, and you want to get, you want to certify and get those letters cool do it yeah right it's a great thing um and and i'm supportive of the fact that that those certification programs are around um but i i object to them being used as the basis for hiring uh by hr people unless they're looking for hiring into a senior position mm-hmm. but if it's a if it's a uh, an entry level in that in that area you got to give people a chance to get in. Yeah, that's fair. right. That's fair. So I, you know, I think one of the big things that stands in the way um, of standardization and and so on these days, and and the whole information question, is that standards are bloody expensive. Yes. To to develop, like not to, not just to buy, like the price you pay to buy them, they are really cheap to buy when you look at what the input costs are right how many um, people are in the room how many hours it takes to develop that standard and update it yeah understandable so so like the the z432 standard 
our committee right now is around 35 people. Now, realistically, it's like any other group project, right? There's about half of the people that actually show up to do something. Mm -hmm. um, and of the half that show up, there's probably a third of those people that are actually really directly engaged in getting it done. But if you consider that there's, let's say, 15 people in a room, most of those people are senior level people. So they're probably costing their companies something on the order of, let's say, 75 bucks an hour. Okay, so now do the math. One hour meeting, 75 bucks an hour, 15 people. Okay, now most of our standards meetings are three days. Yeah. So, and we have a couple of those a year at least. Yeah. Right. Um, and then there are side meetings that we do to actually develop proposals for the text and all that kind of stuff that are outside of that scope and there are fewer people, but still quite frequent. Yeah. So, you know, it's not at all unusual for the development cycle. If you if you looked at the entire cost to be somewhere on the order of 100,000 to 250,000, depending on the, the document and everything just those input costs. Yeah. Uh, and those are borne by the the employers of all the people that are members of the committee, because in Canada, we do that on a voluntary basis. So, yeah. you know, that those costs are, are borne by the employers and CSA carries a cost as well, because they have to host and support all that with a project manager. Then they have to do the editing and production and publication of the document and so on. So, you know, quarter million bucks to produce a new document every five years. Yeah. And there are how many standards? Well, ISO publishes about 24,000 standards right now. Wow. So when you think about the the size of the standards economy, and yeah. I mean, you know, there's ISO, there's IEC, there's the International uh, Telecommunications Union, those are the international bodies, and then every uh, country has their own standards organizations as well. Yeah. We're talking billions of dollars a year in this. So the question is then, well, why can't, why aren't standards free? Well, some standards are free. Yep. Um, you know, if you look at CSA's workplace violence uh, standard, for instance, it's uh, one of the new Z series standards. You can get a copy of that from CSA for free. Um, but there are other, and that's only done because they had supporting organizations that were prepared to pay the cost to give those documents away because the the feeling was that the standards were so important that it was more important to get the documents into the hands of people that could use them in the workplace than it was to actually get paid for them. So it's the Volvo seatbelt scenario. Right. So for us to, to get to a place where all standards were free, 24,000 from ISO, similar number from IEC, some hundreds from CSA, similar for ANSI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not going to happen because those costs have to be borne somewhere by somebody. Right, right. Um, and, and you know, this, the, the profits that the standards bodies make from selling a lot of these documents do not cover their costs. They have to get funding from government and from other organizations to try to support the writing of those standards because you can't sell enough volume in most of these standards to ever recover the costs. I mean, I think Z432 right now is 185 bucks for the current version, I think, something like that. I think we've sold uh, a couple of thousand since 2015. Hmm. Okay, so do the math. Yeah. <laughs> right? That, that doesn't seem like a whole lot. It's not. It's not. And that's Canada's general safety of machinery standard. It's yeah. one that every every machine builder in the country should have a current copy of, at well, least one. 
if not, not more. Only, not only the machine builders, I think the end users need them too, right? Again, they we do. talked earlier they about the li- yep. liability lies on them. So yep. they should be familiar with that. And that, that kind of rounds out about when we talk about machine, again, I'm going to talk about machine safety design because that's kind of our passions here. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but really, you know, what, 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 what's kind of a hindrance, you know? What what makes what makes a hindrance of safety and what makes productivity? I know typically uh, bad uh, safety design, whether it be good or bad, plays on either side because yep. I I found the culture of of a place and and I talk on a on a few Discord and a few uh, uh, forums and some people are amazed uh, when I say oh you shouldn't do that because this this and this and they say oh well, you know I've run into equipment that was like this and it got in the way. I said, yeah, that's bad safety design. That's, you know, that that's unfortunately your first experience, maybe your second experience, but that's the experience that you remember. And that yep. is not reflective of safety in the workplace, right? That's what creates the industrial S word. That would, what makes safety such a bad <laughs> word in this yep. environment is bad safety design. You talked about earlier about, you know, people just automatically go into category four because, cya because you know they didn't want to think but when you make something so inaccessible humans are problem solvers they're going to work around it if it's mm-hmm. not the right safety design it it is it is so bad i don't know if you've had examples or if you can reflect on on you know where safety um has been uh, an unfortunate hindrance or or where safety has been a, a, a an example of productivity. Ooh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I mean, there there are there are lots of places where bad safety design gets in the way of of work. And um, and you know, I always tell my clients, um, if you don't take into account the way a machine is used right. when you're designing the guarding. What will happen is that the guards that get in the way will be the ones that disappear, usually on third shift. They'll they'll come off the machine and they'll somehow magically just not be there the next day. And right. and and that's just how it is, because they get in the way of people having to do what it is they do, which is why understanding the system of work and understanding what you're actually asking people to do and how they have to do that work is so important and so simple 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 stuff like let's take the grease zerks for the bearings and put them on extension tubes out to a manifold on the outside of the machine now you don't have to take a guard panel off to lubricate the machine you can walk by every third tuesday and put two squirts of grease and all the zerks on the on that machine and you're done yeah right and so now those all the bolts that hold those guards on where the where the zerks are they all stay in place you don't have to worry about finding the the fixed guard that originally had 12 bolts holding it in that now has two at the top that it's just hanging on and they're not even tight because you want to pull them out by hand you know (laughs) right and i mean i've i i have seen that kind of thing happen or you get you get situations i somebody sent me a photo a while ago of a machine where they the uh owner had added guarding to this thing and there was an e-stop button behind the guard right you could see it you couldn't get to it <laughs> well okay come on right so so when you're doing that kind of work you have to you have to really consider what's going on how the equipment's used where the 
pre-existing safety systems, if there are any, are located, how they have to be used. Yeah. Older industries like uh, commercial laundries, for instance, commercial laundry equipment is a freaking safety nightmare. Yeah, it's been been discussed in a lot of our our meetings eternally um, with the company mm -hmm. at work. Uh, Schmerzel often talks about um, you know, the, 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 that laundry applications, we've done a few different situations, but seeing some of the equipment, the size of it, the loads that they carry, the overhead cranes, it's, it's really weird to think of linens being washed as a hazard again, because I don't have, I've never worked in that workspace, but I have a machine and dryer at home and I do loads of laundry and I never feel unsafe. But when you take that equipment and you amplify that 10, 30 times over, that becomes a big, dangerous machine. Well, you know, the, the typical load of laundry you're going to put in a residential washing machine is going to be probably somewhere around four or five kilos. Yeah. Probably might be, a, might be a little bit more than that. Uh, you know, some, some bigger capacity machines, you might get a six or eight kilo load, but usually it's going to be less than that. And that's dry. You know the the big commercial machines. You're looking at uh, at machines that are, you know, up, the biggest washers I've I've looked at were um, 1,200 pounds dry. <laughs> so now you make that wet. Yeah. Now it's probably three three times that mass. Yeah. Um, and you know they all have centrifugal extraction cycles. So you've now got. 3,600 pounds spinning at you know five six hundred RPM. No, there's no hazards there. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, when you look at, at ironing machines, uh, I mean, there's always all kinds of exposed, um, pinch points and stuff on, on the washers too. You know, they, uh, from, from just the, uh, pinch crush points between the, the part of the frame that actually carries the working parts and the, the they're always mounted on vibration mounts. Mm-hmm. So then you've got a frame on the floor, you've got a gap in between that moves while the washing machines running, those gaps are never guarded. Um, and the washing machines normally have a tip-up feature to dump the the loads out. Yeah. So now you've got that entire mechanism lifting, and all of those all of the crush pinch crush points in those frames are wide open typically. Yeah. Right. Um, on the ironing machines, um, the basic design of an ironing machine has not changed in the last hundred years. Oh boy. So so you have you have steam drums that are heated by live dry steam. They're usually at like 350 degrees something like that uh they're rollers and so now you're feeding sheets or tablecloths or something like that into these ironing machines through rollers that people have to get their hands close to usually there's some sort of a guard right at the at the feed table but not always and then it's drawn the 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 wet laundry is drawn through those feed rollers around these steam drums and eventually ejected out the other end. Well, if you get sucked into that machine, you just got sucked into a 350 pound or 350 degree Fahrenheit heated uh, compression system. Yeah, it it's going to be bad. Right, it's going to be bad. And all of those rolling drums and everything, they're all. Uh, connected by chains and all kinds of other things that are somewhat sketchily guarded usually. Right. Uh, plus you have lint and all kinds of other things. So now you've got all that stuff building up around the equipment. You've got to clean it up because otherwise you've got lint explosions and other things that can happen, fires and, and that. So you need guards that you can take off to clean the stuff that has to be cleaned and put back on securely. 
or open and closed effectively. And and a lot of the companies that are buying equipment like this want it cheap. And so then the safety systems suffer. And I've seen lots of those machines with just the cheapest, cheesiest micro switches for guard interlocks. Right. Um, you know, the that whole industry has a huge problem with the way they, they handle safety. Right. And some of it has to do with the workers that are typically in that industry. They're usually at the very low end socioeconomically. Yep. They're often uh, women. Um, they're often um, uh, people of color or racialized gr- groups. And so they can be abused by unethical uh, employers quite easily. Right. And so the design of the equipment goes with that. Right. Because that's the kind of crap those employers want to buy. I, I feel I feel like we, we could probably just do an episode on, on uh, market segments and industries that, that need an overhaul. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure we'd make any friends doing that. No, but probably yes. not. Yeah. But I mean, that would be a, that would be good a good discussion point because um, you know we talk about ideas on how to apply the hierarchy of controls to certain applications and maybe people mm-hmm. that listen uh, that have those kind of things uh, might 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 reflect on and resonate with. Well, I, I don't know if I have much else uh, I want to talk about. I mean, this has been a great experience for me. Uh, we're getting uh, pretty close to the end point. Uh, I'm going to throw it to you, Doug. Do you have anything that you want to promote? Do you have anything that's going on that's exciting that people should look out for in, in, in your world, in your hemisphere of industry? Um, well, I guess for the functional safety nerds out there, watch for the new edition of 13849 Part 1. Uh, that's coming sometime this year once the EU gets out of our way. Um, there have been a lot of improvements to the design of the document and the readability and expansions in areas where we know people have been having trouble. Uh, the good thing to know is all the calculations are still the same. So the you know that part, the the hard part is unchanged. So that part's going to be fine. Um, the uh, and there's also a new edition of Z432 coming out this year that we're just about done. Um, It's actually in public review right now. So for anybody that feels like they want to spend some time and review that document, head over to CSA, look up the the public review portal, and you can help us out by giving us your thoughts on that document. Um, See, what else can I think of? Well, I guess my course on on 13849 is probably the most exciting thing I've got going on right now. Um, and I'm really excited to get that out. I've, I taught a beta version of it to one of my clients uh, in March and uh, they got a lot out of it. Um, and uh, actually some of the feedback I got was that it was maybe a little too deep. So I've been working on trying to revise some of the material where they felt felt like I went down the rabbit hole, hole a little <laughs> bit farther than I needed to. <clears throat> so, okay, I'm, I'm trying to keep daylight in sight uh, on these things. Um, so those are the big things for me. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, um, I'm just, you know, watching the safety world go by and, and watching what, what the trends are and trying to see where we're going to go. Um, a, a few years ago, somebody asked me about what I thought the impact of IoT uh, in was going to be on safety systems. Hmm. And uh, at that time, there, uh, there was nothing I could have said because there, nobody was really developing anything that uh, engaged with the whole IoT world. I think now we're starting to see some systems. I know there are light curtains and other things that are available with IoT functionality that at least provide some uh, operational data and some other things like that. Um, to my knowledge, none of the safety functionality is working 
uh, as part of that, uh, which is a big relief to me because I think that would be a bad thing. Um, but that also goes hand in hand with the need for uh, improved cybersecurity in industrial systems. And there are some new standards being developed in ISO uh, that specifically address cybersecurity for um, industrial equipment, including in TC199, uh, those of us that are responsible for 1349 and, and all those others. Any of the standards that start with the words safety of machinery, you can blame that on TC199. Um, so the, there is a new cyber standard that's being developed there. Um, and we also have a new technical report coming out that deals with the uh, forces that you can apply to the human body without doing injury. Yes. And that is linked to the new robot standard as well. Um, so the robot guys have rolled up. There was a technical report, uh, TR-15066, that's been around for quite a while um, that uh, deals with collaborative robots and uh, how you uh, interpret the existing robot standard in light of collaborative robots. Well, they brought in a bunch of the material from our TR on forces on human bodies, and there's now some new test requirements and other things that the collaborative guys are are doing so so there's lots of interesting things going on especially in robotics uh, i've got a number of clients that are developing some pretty cool new products um, that are uh, either fully autonomous robots or um, collaborative robots um, and um, so there's some there is some some really interesting stuff going on in there too so so yeah that's my world <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you joining me today and, and recording this with me. I, I hope to have you back again. Uh, you've been a very big delight for me. And once again, I, I appreciate all the insight and education you've given me over the years. Anytime, Matt. Glad to do it. Thank you again. See you later. That was Doug Nix from Compliance Insight Consulting, Inc. If you'd like to reach out to Doug, you can connect with him on LinkedIn slash in slash Doug Nix, or directly through his website, complianceinsight.ca. Thank you, everyone, for listening and trying to get this out of safety. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at theindustrialsword at gmail.com. Music for this episode was provided by Sleep or Lack Thereof.